Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 21st, 2014. This is episode 1410 of the Survival Podcast. Every once in a while when I give out the number of the episode, I... I think back to saying something like, this is episode 13 or 12 or 21, and think how long we've been here and how far we've come during that. I hope you enjoy today's show. I've been doing a lot lately on getting you to think for yourself, um, freeing your mind from the, well, corporate bullshit and political bullshit that's used to control our society. I thought, well, we've probably had enough of that for a while. We need something a little bit lighter, uh, a little more practical. And uh, by now you're either releasing some of that baggage or you're clinging to it. And either way, maybe I can make you feel better by talking to you about herbs. Yeah, herbs. We're going to talk today about 18 herbs that I think every prepper should grow, every modern survivalist should grow. You may not grow all 18. I think you should, you should, but grow what you want. I'm trying to do this show in a way, though, that will help the people that are like, dude, I don't want a garden. I don't want a food forest. I don't want a chicken. I don't want any of this crap. I just want to learn how to be more prepared for modern life. I think that having food, uh, medicine, and uh, ways to improve your life growing on your property can help you do that. And I think that the herbs we're going to talk about today, by and large, can just be put in here and there without a lot of maintenance. It'll take less maintenance than your lawn currently does. But if you like growing stuff, you're really going to dig today's show. So either way, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn something. And because I'm going to talk about what the herbs do more than how to grow them, if you don't want to grow them, at least if you can find a source, you'll still learn how to use them. Anyway, before I get to the 18 herbs today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, and I promise you I didn't decide to do it this way, but it kind of worked out. Uh, We have two sponsors today that have a lot to do with herbs. First one, Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He really is. He's a prepper himself. And uh, he's a guy that at one time was a, a chef at like a five-star restaurant and, uh, and you know, some artsy-fartsy ski, skiing area where people spend ridiculous amounts of money on food. And you got to be really an amazing chef to have the job of a head chef at one of those places. That was him, and he got tired of it and went out and started homesteading and doing his own thing. He built Harvest Eating. He's got an amazing YouTube channel, an amazing podcast, a great blog, tons of recipes, tons of instructions. He'll teach you how to cook seasonally and locally. Additionally, he has some of the greatest herbal spice mixes you'll find. You should check them out today. My favorites are the Montana steak, the northern Italian, and the grilled chicken. He actually has all of those and some other stuff that I really enjoy put together in a TSP Monster Pack and a lot of other great options. I'll tell you what, the uh, the basil pesto uh, sauce he has is awesome, too. Check him out today, harvesteating.com, where Chef Keith will help you learn to make cooking a life skill, and I'll tell you that cooking is definitely a prepper skill. Next up today, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals. I'm telling you guys, I didn't plan it this way. It just worked out. Uh, Western Botanicals has everything for your herbal needs. If you hear something today you want to try and you ain't grown it yet, I bet you Western Botanicals has it, and they will help you if you have any questions. Give them a call. They're real people that really care about you, uh, and they are also a huge supporter of the Survival Podcast, giving away their uh, premium membership, which is 50 bucks a year. Uh, they get you 25% off everything they sell, and they give that to you for free if you are a Survival Podcast member, Support Brigade member. You can find out more in the benefits section of the MSB. On that note, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode, and uh, that's all I'll say about that today. It's a really great deal. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount if you email me at jack at com. Service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Anyway, um, by the way, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Best way to get in touch with me, period. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, better than Facebook, better than whatever else you might try to use, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. All right, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. 
The year is 1410 because the episode's 1410. Alex Shrugged has lined up for us today. The Mings meet the Mongols. That sounds kind of like a modern sitcom. It's not, though. A civil war has broken out between the northern Yan Mongols of Genghis Khan's Mongolia and the Volga Taters, the Golden Horde. Now, understand Genghis is long gone by now, but it's his, it's his clan. Uh, to the northwest of China. Since throwing off the Mongol rule, the Ming dynasty of China has been in rebuild mode, and the, but the Yongle emperor has had great success using the Star Fleet. It's really what it was called, yes, the Star Fleet, to gain vassals and extract tribute in every port it lands in. Last year, the emperor sent an ambassador to demand a tribute from the northern Mongols as well. The body of the Ming ambassador is returned forthwith, so the Yongle emperor has led five expeditions into Mongolia and wiped out almost the entire Mongol force there, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. So the Chinese are doing to the Mongols what the Mongols for a long time have done to the Chinese. Extraction and decapitation and extortion, etc. The Ming, and this is my take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. The Ming Empire is turning into a force for conquest. They are reaping the benefits of the previous work, planting a million trees, rebuilding canals, and sending out a fleet of ships. But the Silk Road has not been maintained and has fallen into disuse. So they're going more of the uh, naval approach to their trade in the future, which is really uh, in some ways more efficient, but yet you can't get to a lot of places, at least yet, Uh, by boat, so they've got a problem there. I'll tell you, I have a totally different viewpoint on this. I want you to think about why China is having the, let's call it success, whether you like the way they're doing it or not, that they are. Planting a million trees, building the Starfleet, yeah, and that's what they called it. That was one of yesterday's segments, if you want to learn about it. You can look it up on the 1409. It's a great big fleet of ships and warriors go out and do all the things to other people that the Mongols have done to them for years and beginning to expand their empire. Why? Think about it. Why? What's happened to China throughout all this period? Well, the Mongols went in there and slaughtered tons of them. Black Death came and killed millions more. And now they're rising as a power. Do you know why? Who's left? Tough, tough, survivalist sons of bitches, that's who. These are the hardest of the heart of the Chinese. They've been through so much death and so much mayhem. And they've also taken death and mayhem and war as a way of life. And they're now replicating that which was done onto them onto others. There's a lesson there. There really is. I'll leave it to you to figure out for yourself. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I want to... Kind of start this out before I get into the individual herbs, just saying why I think this is important. There's a lot of people that say to me all the time, I don't have that much land. Grow herbs. Okay. There's a lot of people that say to me, I really want to garden and do stuff like that, but I don't have a lot of time and I can't be spending all this time and money right now. So I, I, I really can't grow herbs. There's a lot of people that say to me, you know, I just don't feel healthy and I'd like to eat better. But I can only afford certain food, and I can only spend so much time growing my own food, and I have to deal with what I have, so grow herbs. There's a lot of people that say to me, I wish that I just had more variety in my life. I wish I had more ability to be resilient to diseases and stuff like that, but I don't have grow herbs. Herbs are nature's answer to almost every problem, other than the problems we create for ourselves. Nature's problems, nature's answer to nature's problems. So the natural problems that we encounter can almost always be healed by herbs. And that's not just medicinally, but mechanically in many other ways. Here's what I mean. First thing to understand is that most herbs are actually, at least where they grow natively, weeds in many ways. And what makes them a weed? They grow profusely without being planted. Uh, they grow in big bunches, and they can kind of run away. They grow in poor, disturbed, bare, depleted soils that won't support much else. Now, that is a weed. Now, we have been led to believe in this country and throughout the modern world that a weed is an invader that comes into our field to destroy it. 
But a weed is actually a pioneer that comes into a field to fix it. So right from the get-go, if we look at the weedy nature of weeds, the weedy nature of herbs, we see that exactly what the herb is doing for us when it comes to tonifying, cleansing, or improving our body's health is what it's doing to the land itself. Now, that's really, really remarkable. And I can tell you, long ago, when mankind had figured out that herbs could be a food that would be used as a medicine for their body, they had yet to figure this out, that herbs actually repaired the land. They really didn't understand that. As they, we moved into an agricultural society, uh, anything growing where you didn't want it was always considered bad. The, the concept that er, herbs and weeds... And all weeds are basically herbs. They're not all useful to us the way that some are. But basically, weeds in of themselves are part of the herbaceous layer of plantings. It makes them herbs. That They actually come in and germinate where they're most needed. If you find a plant that's really good at mining selenium, you'll find it growing where there's almost no selenium. If you have a plant that's really good at mining boron, you'll find it growing where there's almost no boron. And, and you, you, that almost is counterintuitive because it's like, well, pines grow in acidic soil. No, pines change the soil to the acidic. Pines will certainly grow in alkaline soil. I saw it all over Arkansas. The soil is mostly alkaline. Pines grow anywhere, eventually at least to succession to oak and hickory, as it acidifies the soil. So... We have been led to believe, like so, just from the modern method of thought, that if you see something that's high in selenium, that must mean there's lots of selenium where that thing is. No. What it means is there's selenium everywhere. There's magnesium everywhere. There's boron everywhere. It's just where is it? And in what form is it? It might be bound up with another nutrient. It might be in a non-bioavailable form, part of a rock, something like that. And what it needs is to be extracted used, processed, and, and then returned back to the soil so that other plants can use it. So if we want to grow plants that need selenium in a place where there is no selenium, we can amend soil, or we can plant plants that are called dynamic accumulators of selenium. We put them there, and eventually you can put plants in there that need the selenium, and you don't have to amend anything because the selenium miners are mining more than they need and putting the surplus back to the soil. And the entire health of the system will be restored with the proper use and application of a weed, which is also an herb and is a natural system. Now, I, I want you to, I know some of you are like, oh, he's going all academic on this plant crap again. Listen, I know I'm a bit of a plant geek on some things. I get it. But really think about what I've just told you. I can take an herb like comfrey. And you could have a wound, and I could make a salve or a poultice, or I could just mash the leaves up and put it on that wound. Put a bandage over that wound and hold that comfrey on that wound. And that comfrey will heal the landscape of your arm. And it will. So much so that if you're going to use comfrey that way, make sure you wash the wound out very well. Don't just put it on there while it's still dirty, because it will seal skin over the dirt. But comfrey will heal the landscape of your arm, and if we use it in a different application, it will heal the landscape of the earth. It's almost like nature knows what she's doing. You got that? And that's why I think these, these herbs that I'm going to talk about today are so miraculous. Because they all serve natural functions of repair, restoration, and maintenance in nature. So blackberry, for instance, which will be our first one, serves these roles very obviously. Where do you find blackberry? You generally don't walk through the middle of a field, out in the middle of the very, very middle of the field, hundreds of feet away from any trees or anything, and there's a blackberry growing in the middle of the field. Doesn't happen. You usually find blackberry just outside of a forest edge, right at the forest edge, or maybe just a little bit into the edge of the forest. It's an edge species. It maintains the edge. It allows for the forest to advance. It also repairs as 
As woody perennials start to come up into a shrub layer, blackberry moves in and holds the soil and helps develop it. And because it has sweetness of its fruit, it, it, it is something that's highly sought by animals to eat, but because it's prickly and spiny, they generally don't eat the plant to the ground so it can survive. So it says to the animals, you can have a few leaves and you can have all the berries you want, but you shall leave me alone or I will spine you in the face. Most of the animals go, okay, dude, we'll do that, right? So that blackberry is able to nurse other plants and other woody perennials until they get up high enough that they're above the browse line of the animals so that they can establish. And once that's done, the blackberry continues to move out along the forest edges, the forest advances, and maintain and stabilize that system. So it first heals, and then it maintains Now, think about what you would want an herb to do for you as a medicinal. Would, it, would you not want it to heal you when you're not well and help you maintain your health when you're healthy? I'm just saying that if we see the pattern, we have pattern recognition is what we call it in permaculture, of the blackberry filling that role, it's probably the case that blackberry can be used both to heal and to maintain health and to stabilize health in our bodies. Isn't that awesome? I mean, before I go into all of these things, I, I want you to just, if you've never heard anything like that before, if you've glossed over this, stop a second, pause, rewind and listen to it again. It's the cool thing about it being a podcast. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody explain it that way before. And, and this is why, those of you that are like, I wish you wouldn't do so much permaculture stuff, this is why I think permaculture is awesome. Without that pattern recognition training in your mind, you'll never see that pattern. So then you have to ask yourself, how many other patterns am I missing? And not just natural patterns, man-made patterns, business patterns, social patterns, media patterns. How do you think I know, how do you think I know what I know about the media lying to you? How come you think every time I tell you they're full of shit, This isn't going to happen, or they're full of shit, and this is going to happen, and here's going to be the result. Almost every time, sooner or later, you're like, damn, he was right again. This guy must have a team of researchers. I kind of do. It's you guys. You guys send me all the information. But I don't have anybody disseminating it or going through it, and I don't spend anywhere near as much time reading it all as you might think because I simply do not have the, the hours in the day to do it. But I can look at it, and I can feel the pulse of the headlines, and I can say to myself simply, what's the pattern here? Who does this benefit? Who's, at whose expense is it? And it's almost always at your expense and my expense. And therefore, it's really easy to disseminate the pattern. And if you stop looking at the minutia and pull up to the pattern, the identification is easy. That's how, that's how I look at herbs, though. What will the herb do in nature? It's probably the case it will do that in our bodies. I'm going to go through these herbs. I'm going to talk about them and basic uses for them. I'm not going to get into really sophisticated stuff like how to make elderberry cough syrup today. I'm just going to tell you that it will do these things for you because all that information is available online, and we may one day do you know, 10 herbal preparations and how to make them or something like that. I'd love to get the guys from Western Botanicals on to do that. They're more qualified than me. But I just want you to be aware of these plants, what they do, how they work, and what's possible with them, and I want to stick to very basic daily uses of them so that you'll start using them because this is what I believe about all of these herbs I'm going to give you today. If you're routinely using them, you will have better health. I believe that. I'm not making a medical claim. So I want to start out with blackberry, and I'm going to go like the, the purely medicinal thing here um, with blackberry is the astringency of the roots and the leaves can be used to treat sore throats, mouth ulcers, gum inflammations. You can make a decoction of the leaves, and, and that's useful as a gargle in treating thrush and a good general mouthwash, right? And there's a lot more. It's an astringent, which if you think about something that, like, makes your mouth pucker, right, that's an astringent quality. And that makes it actually useful for treating diarrhea and help soothing sore throats. So that's, like, some of the medicinal things. And that can be done both with roots and it can be done with leaves. But I'm talking about just general use, some of the things you can use with blackberry. Obviously, you can eat the berries. But did you know that blackberry leaves make a great tea just as a tea? 
They do have an astringent tannic quality that can be used medicinally, especially with more um, higher intensive uh, levels, no more higher dosage, I guess. But, I mean, tea is tannic. I'm talking about regular old tea that you get from uh, the store and uh, make a cup out of is, is tannic. So that's part of why it makes a good tea. Um, so I've used blackberry tea uh, for a long time, and I'll use both the leaves, and a lot of times what I'll do is I'll dry some blackberries, uh, just dehydrate them, and I'll keep the, tea, the leaves and the, the fruit separately. But you can make a tea with a little bit of blackberry leaf, a little bit of dried blackberry berry, and mint, That's a, and, and honey. And uh, that's a great tea. You can add a little chamomile. There's a lot of other things you can do with that as a base, but that's a great tea. And it's very tonifying. It's very, it's very relaxing and yet energizing at the same time. It's it's a feeling awake without feeling caffeine awake. I guess is a way to put it. So there's that. But did you know? Because I didn't. I just learned this recently that you can actually ferment blackberry leaf to make a tea much closer to the tea that you're accustomed to from. Uh, a tea shop, you know, a typical tea. Um, and what I mean by that is to ferment it to a black tea, like Lipton tea, for, for lack of a better word, or Earl Grey, something like that, right? So here's how you do that. And I found this on a website called sierrabotanica.com. You gather the blackberry leaves from the canes that have not yet flowered. Cut the leaves off at the stem. So you want to do, if you're doing this, you want to make sure you do this in the spring. I've made blackberry tea from leaves all year round, but apparently... To do this, you're better off doing it in the spring. So let the leaves dry for a day in the shade on a screen or a sheet in a single layer. Place the leaves on a sheet and bruise by repeatedly rolling over them with a rolling pin. I am sure that a mason jar would work just as well. Wrap the leaves up in a damp cloth and keep them in a warm place for 24 to 48 hours. She says, I put them on a, a trail in my garden where it received full sun for most of the day. That worked well. So you want them in a warm place for one, you know, for about 24 to 28 hours, but wet in this damp cloth. And it says, the top green sides of the leaves should now be half to fully blackened. Let the leaves air dry in the shade on a screen. When they're fully dry, wrap them up again in a sheet or a blanket and walk on them or use a rolling pin to break the leaves into smaller pieces for tea. Pack the leaves in a glass jar and store in a cruel, a, a cruel, a cool, dry place. So you can make a black tea from, from blackberry leaf. I, I didn't know this. I'm going to have to try this. If anybody's tried it, let me know. I'll put a link to where that recipe is on the uh, website today. But it has me thinking, because I'm going to talk about some other things you can make tea from. Uh, and one plant that, that the leaves look remarkably like small versions of, of, of you know the typical camellia tea plant that we're familiar with. You get oolong and all the other teas from. Um, so anyway, I might try that with some other leaves as well. Anyway, I'll just say I think blackberry has a lot of medicinal uses. It's a great berry to eat. There's tons of different varieties you can plant, including primocanes. Primocanes are plants that produce two crops a year instead of one. takes a very little space. It's a survivor if there ever was one. So it makes sense to grow that plant. Um, next up on my list today, elderberry. If you want cough medicine in your backyard, grow black elder. I mean, it's that simple. It's an incredible plant. For growing, um, for, for growing your own cough syrup, basically. And there's lots of different websites out there where you can learn how to turn elderberry into, into that. If you grow lots of it, it makes an incredible wine. The flowers actually can be cooked into a fritter. And, and Angry Orchard Cider has out something right now uh, that I'm fascinated with. It's called Elderflower uh, Cider. So it's an apple cider mixed with elderflower. Now, I'm not really in love with Angry Orchard as a producer of cider. I think that they're killing their yeast and then sweetening it to appeal to the crowd that wants a sweeter cider. Um, but that is really good. It's a great, you know, and it makes me think, what can we do with like an elderflower mead? You know, a good, dry, highly attenuated elderflower mead should be amazing. So I've got something that I can use. From a culinary standpoint, I can use it in venting and brewing, and I can use it to make my own cough syrup. And elder is an amazing medicinal overall. I mean, this stuff is very, very uh, effective antioxidant. Uh, there's been 
research done that's shown that it's had an effect on lowering cholesterol. Um, it's, it's full use include improvement of vision, boosting the immune system. Um, definitely, like I said, coughs, colds, flu, uh, bacterial viral infections, tonsillitis. I'm not saying it cures this stuff because, well, number one, I can't. But I, I don't even believe that it cures it. I believe it, it aids the body in fighting off these types of illnesses. It is another plant that's just a survivor. It doesn't take much space up. If you just want enough for personal medicinal use at home, uh, three or four plants along the edges of your property, even if you have a small property, um, will grow tall and tough and do well. And uh, they'll kind of spread, and you can control the spread just by pruning back what you don't want. It's easy to propagate from cuttings and roots, so you can make more to sell or share or give away. And it does so much, and it asks for so little in return. It'll grow in crappy soil. As long as it has moisture and it can get some depth of soil, and uh, you give it a little bit of mulch, it, it will just pretty much take care of itself after that. So there's just no reason not to have it as part of what you're doing. The next one I have is garlic, and I'll tell you that I've talked to a lot of herbalists over the years, and whenever I get an herbalist into a good conversation in the right frame of mind, I always spring the one question on them that you know no herbalist really wants to be asked because it's so limiting, and that is if I took away your access to all herbs and you could only have one, you were in an empty room, you had sick people, you didn't know what they were going to be sick from, and you could only have one herb, what would it be? And almost all of them say garlic. And to back that up, I'm going to read for you, because the person who wrote this article is a doctor and can make health claims because he's a doctor, uh, is uh, Joe Anton. Now, who's Joe Anton? Anton? Alton, I'm sorry, Joe Alton. I, I call him Doc Bones. So Doc Bones, Joseph Alton, and uh, Amy Alton, who's uh, Nurse Amy, have an article at Backwoods Home Magazine And I want to read to you just three paragraphs of it under medicinal uses for garlic. Garlic contains volatile oils of alan, alanase, which is an enzyme that converts alanin to allicin when garlic is crushed, and allicin. Sulfurous compounds like dileic dulcophide, selenium, and vitamins A, B, C, and E. The volatile oils and sulfurous compounds are responsible for both its pungent odor and its medicinal properties. Organically grown garlic tends to have higher sulfur level and therefore a stronger medicinal effect. Garlic has an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects, fights a variety of ailments. I'm going to pause right there and tell you this. If something is both anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant, you want it to be part of your diet if it's safe to use as food. And garlic, as we know, is safe to use as food. Um, the two greatest things that, that upset our health, in my opinion, are inflammation and oxidation. These are the two biggest problems with aging. Uh, they're the two things that I think lead us to the most susceptible to attack by illnesses and disease, aches, pains. I believe that the majority of modern illnesses, stuff that we didn't really see in large numbers um, until the last 20 to 50 years, is inflammation-related, and I believe that. And So if you have an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory food, you want it in your diet. Garlic has been used to help combat, I'm back in the article now, combat cardiovascular disease. It may decrease and prevent arterial sclerosis by inhibiting the stickiness of, of platelets that, that, uh, and blood clot formation. By lowering cholesterol, garlic decreases cholesterol and thins blood flowing through the already narrowed vessels. It's this action that may lower the incidence of strokes and heart attacks in people who eat garlic daily. A word of caution to those taking aspirin or anticoagulants because garlic can increase the clotting times. Do not add too much garlic to your diet. How about stop taking aspirin uh, as, as, as that type of thing? I think is better. I'd rather have the garlic. Garlic may also decrease triglyceride levels while raising good cholesterol levels known as HDL. Again, they are both positive and negative studies regarding garlic's influence on the levels of cholesterol, triglycerides, and HDL. Diet and exercise are your primary tool for prevention of heart disease. Um, so... That's a pretty compelling case. Now, I'll tell you that this article has a great list of ways to use garlic, so I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. And since I'm going to do that, I'm not going to read any more of this article for you. But what I'll tell you is the best way to be using garlic in your cooking is raw. There's a lot of the compounds that make garlic so amazing that begin to break down and are destroyed when we cook it. People say, well, raw garlic stinks. No, it doesn't. 
No, I, there's this this fact or reality here that when people are told something their entire lives, they believe it whether it's true or not. And, and nothing could be more true with garlic. I promise you, if you come to my house and I make you a, a, a fresh pico de gallo, which is basically a chunky salsa, uh, Mexican style, some jalapenos and some cilantro in it, there's going to be a lot of garlic in it. And it's all going to be raw. And I guarantee you, when you smell that, the words that are going to come out of your mouth are, oh my God, does that smell good. And if I make you bruschetta, which is going to be tomato, olive oil, garlic, basil, salt, and pepper, do the same thing. You just, you, you, when you smell it, you, you, you'll want to eat it. Right? That's not something that stinks. When I smell something that stinks, I don't want to eat it. I make comfrey um, fertilizer over a six-week period, and I put it in three big glass bottles, and trust me, I don't want to drink it. It smells like poo juice, all right? That stink. Garlic doesn't stink. Garlic has a strong odor. Now, when you're in a kitchen where people cook with excessive amounts of garlic all the time, and it builds up with grease and oils and all the other smells mixed with it, it can smell bad. If you're around somebody who eats garlic like apples, and some people, believe it or not, do, and they're sweating and they have garlic sweat stink, it can smell bad. But garlic itself smells wonderful. And the other thing is, well, it's hot, it's spicy, it's too intense. Garlic comes in really hot, really intense red, purple garlics to very mild, light-flavored garlic. So you can change that just by using it. But the other thing is, are you eating it like an apple? You know, breaking up the little, uh, uh, what do you call it, little cloves and popping them in one at a time? Or are you mixing it with other food? Try this. The next time you make a salad... Chop up two or three cloves of garlic. I'd say two cloves per person eating a salad. Chop it up really fine and mix it with olive oil and some Italian seasoning. Chef Keith Snow's got you hooked up if you want to do it. But, you know, basil, oregano, chopped garlic, olive oil, a little salt, a little pepper. Mix that up. A little bit of lemon juice isn't bad in there either. And then use that as a salad dressing. And if you like vinegar, you know, mix it with a little vinegar. By the way, I don't like to make salad dressings. You take oil and vinegar and put them together in one bottle and shake it up and put it on there. I just find that kind of pointless. Um, put the olive oil on, add a little bit of vinegar, mix the toss the salad. Done. Call it a, a day. But the, the garlic and the olive oil will spread and coat the leaves and give this amazing flavor. A little salt and pepper on top of that. You got it made. Well, you're also consuming not only the garlic, but now the, the garlic oil. So you're consuming whole garlic and garlic oil. So you're getting two different forms of, of bioavailability into the body. So that's, that's just one way to do this. Um, if you eat bread, and I do on occasion, I don't eat a lot of bread, but if you eat bread and you want to do garlic bread and you want some raw garlic, just chop up some garlic. Toast your bread, you know, a little garlic and a little oil, and put it under the burner. A little bit of Parmesan cheese is nice, too, by the way. And put it under the broiler till it toasts. Get it out so it doesn't burn. And then when it's still hot, sprinkle some of the fresh chopped garlic on there. Just use garlic. And here's another thing you can do. When you're cooking something, if you cook it all day long or even for 20 minutes straight with the garlic in it, not only will you devalue the garlic from a medicinal standpoint, you'll devalue its flavor contributions. Cooked garlic, especially cooked for, you know, intensely cooked, either sautéed or in some kind of a stew or something like that, has a decidedly different contribution in flavor than raw garlic. So what you can do is you can par-cook it. So you've got your sauté or whatever you're making and have a teaspoon or a tablespoon of chopped garlic put to the side. And when it's really done, take the pan off the heat Dump the garlic in, stir it in, and let the heat, the, the residual heat kind of steam it through. That'll take some of the edge off it, but it won't break it down. So garlic is just something that we should all be using. If you're not growing it, you should be using fresh garlic in your cooking anyway. That's It's highly available, and if you can find sources of organic garlic, you've got your seed right there. When you find a brand or a type you really like, Start putting cloves in the ground. By the way, now's the time. September is garlic planting time, so it's really a good time to do it. Next plant today, wolfberry, also known as goji berry. Um, I had an opinion of gojis up till this year that they were extremely weak plants. I've bought a lot of them from 
catalog companies and what have you, like, you know, good companies too, like Rain Tree, Stark Brothers, and they never seem to be really, really healthy. They, what it is is they don't handle being transplanted well, or transported, I should say, well. What I would do, get a good, protected, sunny window, if you're going to order some of these, and order a couple, and they're expensive, they're about $20 a plant, and immediately put them into a, a really good-sized pot with a really great soil mix, and love on them a long time before they go outside, until they get healthy. Give them some supplemental organic nitrogen fertilizer, what have you. I got some that I did that with this year. I also got some from um, a, a grower who sent me cuttings, directly brooded cuttings, and those were actually much better than the ones I got from the catalogs. And then I played with it one day. I was like pruning one back a little, and I just pruned it, and I stripped the leaves off the bottom, and I stuck it in one of my container tree pots, And just left it there, and, and, and like two weeks later, I realized it's got new growth on it. And they're just massively easy to propagate from cuttings. They're just so easy to propagate from cuttings. So, And then, you know, I've got places where so many plants are stressed out this year from the heat and lack of rain. And the wolfberry's like, whatever, I don't care, bring it on. Even like comfrey's going dormant right now. It's like, you know what, I'm going to check out. September when the rain comes, I'll be back. I'm done. Wolfberry's like, whatever. So I've got this incredibly hardy, strong plant. I've got a couple. I got one that was in the ground last year that made it through a week, uh, you know, uh, catalog planting. It's coming on strong now. It's put a couple little berries on. I've eaten. So, what is the medicinal uses for wolfberry? And it's pretty much it's a food that's good for you uh, that has a lot of medicinal value. But anyway, I found a great supplier of these called Phoenix Tears Nursery. Uh, and they have pretty good prices. For instance, I'll give you some prices right now. If you're buying uh, bare root plants, one-year-old, one to 25 plants, $6.50 each, $12.95 shipping and handling, not per plant but per bundle. Uh, that's way less than buying them from catalogs. If you want two-year-old plants, $12 a piece. I would go there at least. I, would, I think a two-year bare root plant is probably going to be your best bet. bet. And get a few. Get some buddies to go in on them. But... Uh, This is a guy that found these things growing in the Utah desert, and he grows them now in Arizona. And he has some great information on his website about uh, goji. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. Uh, antioxidant and mitochondrial health benefits of wolfberries. Nutrient analysis of Licinium barbarum, variety Phoenix Tears, has verified the antioxidant and mitochondrial potential health benefits of wolfberry fruit and leaves. Phoenix Tears Nursery received two Utah Food and Agricultural Specialty Crop Grants. Funding these grants made possible the documentation of high fruit and leaf nutrients. Uh, aging can in part contribute to free radical attack on body cells. Reactive oxygen species or free radical oxygen molecules can cause damage to DNA, mitochondria, and cell membranes. Antioxidants can play a major role in blunting these effects. Uh, emphasis in this article on wolfberry and nutrients contributed to antioxidant potential and to anti-aging factors. One measure of antioxidant potential is oxygen radical absorption capacity or the aura on the AURAC scale. Blueberries tested at about 30, pomegranates at 100, and dried wolfberries at 300. When it comes to reducing free radical damage on your body, blueberries, which are considered a health powerhouse, had a score of a 30, pomegranates a 100, and dried wolfberries a 300. Continuing on, dried Phoenix Tears leaves tested in the fall of 2009 had an ORAC score of 400, And 56, and in the spring of 2010 had a score of 522. Both values indicating an unmatched ability to absorb injurious free radicals that attack the body. Both the dried fruit and leaves clearly qualify as powerful antioxidants. So you can read the rest of this. I'll put a link to the whole website, phoenixtearsnursery.com, in the show notes for you guys today. But I mean, what did I just say? Antioxidant. It's one of the most important things we can be putting in our bodies. But there's there's three main ways that we can use the wolfberry. We can use the fresh berries and eat them fresh, and they're very, very good. We can dry the berries and use them as a dried fruit. Um, they can either be like sprinkled on a salad or included in like a trail mix or something like that. Or I also make tea with them. You take a small, small handful. I'll get to why it's a small handful in a second. And put them into steaming hot water, like 190 degree water, and let them soak. And you can sweeten that with a little honey. You can use other herbs if you want to, but just the berries um, in hot water like that with a little bit of honey make a great tea. 
And then when you're done drinking the tea, swallow the, eat the berries, right? What's left of the, the berries after they've been rehydrated. Um, I've heard from people that have made the mistake of buying dried wolfberries and eating them by the handful like raisins. It's more like eating tiny prunes by the handful. Yeah, they have that effect too. They will help you move things out of your body and into another place. And if you eat too many, especially dried ones, is really where this kicks in. For some reason, they have a change when they're dried this way. They can have a laxative-like effect, so don't don't do that. Um, but they're they're great either as a tea and, and what have you. The leaves also make a great tea, and that was the plan I was saying. I may try making some black tea from wolfberry. So wolfberry, highly recommend that you use it, grow it, love it, learn all about it. Um, Anything with that much of an antioxidant property can pretty much replace most of the vitamins on your shelf that you're buying for ridiculous prices from the the, uh, the grocery store. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, plantain. Many of you probably already have plantain growing in your, your yards. Um, plantain is one of the best medicinal herbs you can get your hands on. It can be used as a pot herb and little bits of it in salads and stuff. Not too much. It gets a little bit too bitter uh, for my taste to use like that, but... It is probably one of the best, safest medicinals out there to deal with wound care. If you have a wound of any kind and uh, it's you know cleaned out well and you use plantain on it, you probably are not going to get infected and you probably will accelerate your, your healing time. It's also a great anti-inflammatory um, and it has an, an amazingly quick effect on insect stings. Uh, one, when I was at Ben Falk's in, in Vermont, I got stung by one of those great, big, angry, mean-looking red wasps. I, uh, I guess I, I knocked the branch the wrong way with my leg, and he just nailed my calf. And, I mean, you know, those things hurt compared to most bees and wasps. Those are big, and they really nail you. And you can see it looks like something chewed into you where they bite you. Red swells up right away. So he bites me, and I'm like, come on, dude. You know, I see him flying away, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to hunt you down and kill you or nothing. And uh, I look around, and there's plantain everywhere. So I pick up about four plantain leaves and just, like, kind of roll them back and forth through my hands to get some of the juice out of them and make a little sticky pad of them. And he bit me low enough that if I pulled my sock up higher than I normally wear it, it would hold it. <clears throat> so I put it against the bite, pulled my sock up over it, and ten minutes later there was nothing. You couldn't tell that I was ever stung. Will it work that way for you? I don't know. works that way for me. And that's just one example. My first experience with plantain was with my grandfather. He didn't even have a name for it. He called it the leaves. And uh, he had cut his finger and had gotten pretty infected. And I watched him over several days just keep putting new plantain leaves on it. And I watched that wound just heal. And uh, I've, I've always had a tremendous respect for plantain as a medicinal. Uh, so the show doesn't be three hours long today. I'll just keep rolling through, go a little faster with these. I just want to expose you to them. You can get plantain seeds from a lot of herbal places. If it's not already growing on your property, go to parks, go to places where people have lawns that aren't sprayed, and you'll probably find it somewhere. Uh, this is the time of year right now. It has these big leaves. There's actually lots of kinds, but Plantago, Plantago Major uh, or uh, it has these big leaves and these seed heads that stick up three, four inches tall. And right now is the time it's putting a lot of the seed heads on, And if you wait just a little bit longer, most places will dry out. You can just take those seeds, save them till spring, and plant them in spring. You'll have all the plantain you ever want. It's a survivor. It'll grow pretty much throughout most of the United States. It needs water and some halfway sort of kind of decent soil. It'll grow in poor soils. It'll grow in fertile soils. It is a great thing to have in your pasture for your livestock. I just can't say enough good things about it. Next up, Roman chamomile. Most people tend to like German chamomile. I don't know why. Uh, the, the two plants are very similar in the standpoint of what they provide. Uh, they may, both make great teas. They're very calming. They smell wonderful. As cut flowers in the house, they, they bring a nice smell to the home. Uh, but Roman chamomile is a perennial, and German chamomile is an annual. So I prefer perennials because I don't have to plant them every year. primary way that I use uh, chamomile is in teas, and I grow it for the bees. Uh, I grow for the bees and the pollinators that brings in it. It's just absolutely awesome. Next up today, lemongrass. Lemongrass is, well, you can make an insecticide out of lemongrass. Lemongrass oil at about 3% to water and misted will, will kill most flying insects on contact. And yet you can take that 
substance that you just made, add some sugar to it, and it tastes an awful lot like lemonade. Um, lemongrass is great in your cooking. It is a very hardy plant. It's considered a tropical. They tell you you have to grow it inside. I've seen it grown up into like zone six if well mulched and kind of given a little supplemental heat in the form of rocky outcrops that, that kind of help uh, provide heat sink. But when it dies in the, you know, dies down to the roots and the frost, cut it and mulch it about four or five inches under mulch. Usually it'll come back every year, even in very cold climates. And uh, there's actually been some work done on lemongrass. Uh, there was a study done by the University of Wisconsin, and there were some people taking prepared lemongrass capsules, about 140 milligrams a day for three months, and experienced a significant reduction in cholesterol levels. Um, and their cholesterol levels returned to the previous highs when they stopped taking the lemongrass. Obviously, that indicates that the lemongrass may help reduce cholesterol in certain individuals, My source for that is a, uh, a site called Gardens Ablaze, and I have a link to them in today's show notes for you as well. But as we, as we hit some of these more culinary herbs like garlic and chamomile and lemongrass and uh, what have you, <clears throat> it's important to start thinking about the people that have experienced the health benefits of these, these plants and the lifestyles that go along with, with cooking with and using herbs and being outdoors for for you know generations upon generations centuries if not you know thousands of years um for instance i, I just talked about wolfberry wolfberry has been used in chinese medicine for over 2200 years right, so there's a long history of man with these plants lemongrass is if you if you learn how to cook thai cooking you're going to be using lemongrass it's just part of the whole experience that is southeast asian cooking and um This is wonderful flavor, wonderful plant. And is it cool that like it helps reduce cholesterol? Yeah. Do you really need to know that? Do you need to be making decoctions and capsules or whatever? No, you just need to be concluding all of these things in your diet. So lemongrass is a great one to do that with. I'm going to cover three together here because they're all culinary and they all have many of the same properties. Parsley, basil, and oregano. Um I'll kind of break them down individually a little bit because there's different things about growing them. But from a standpoint, we don't think of parsley, basil, and oregano as herbs that have a real medicinal effect on us. Uh, but they are all, all of them, significant uh, as far as antiviral, antibacterial, um, anti-inflammatory, um, and antimicrobial. So... You don't really think of something like parsley or basil or oregano having that type of, uh, of an effect, but they, but they do. And the reason I have them included today is because there's almost no time that you're going to go a day if you cook your own food when you couldn't use one of the, one of the three or more you know, combination of them every day. Um, basil, oregano, and parsley kind of lend themselves to all types of cooking. Let's start out with parsley. Parsley is a very misunderstood herb. I almost think that like all of the dried up little jars of parsley that come in spice racks should be thrown away and never seen again because they give parsley this, this belief that most people have that it doesn't really have any value. It just, eh, it's parsley. What does it do? It doesn't do anything. Now, dried parsley can be useful for some things. Like if you're doing um, grilled potato and you don't have any fresh parsley, some dried parsley sprinkled on that with real butter, not margarine, and grilled They come out pretty good, but not as good as fresh. The other thing that hurts parsley is they take that, you know, curl a little piece of parsley and put it whole as a garnish on your plate next to a steak or something. Nobody picks that up and eats it. So there's this mentality that parsley is like this throwaway thing. Fresh parsley is amazing. Cooking with fresh parsley is just absolutely, totally different than using dried parsley. It's, you know, it's, I'd say the case is that 99% of the times a herb is much better fresh than dried. I think the one exception for cooking is rosemary, and we'll talk about that one in a bit. Parsley is a biannual. That means it grows one year in one form. The next year it grows in a different form, puts on a great big seed head, and then goes to seed and then dies. So if you want to grow it, you don't want to have to keep buying seed or you don't want to have to keep buying plants, then it's important to understand that life cycle. It's also important to understand that in the second year, when a different leaf form comes up, it's not going to be something you want to eat anymore. So you need parsley in, in the first and second stages growing on your property if you always want to have fresh parsley. 
Here's the Bill Mollison, founder of Permaculture Method, to parsley. Make a small bed for parsley. Other things grow there, that's fine, but you're putting that bed in for parsley. Somewhere very close to your back or front door where you can walk outside and get it whenever you want it. Prepare it well. Get it ready for your parsley. Get a packet of seed and sprinkle one or two packets of seed in an area that you probably don't need but ten seeds to grow your parsley. Get it up and growing. Thin it and use the young plants until you get it nicely, densely planted. And at the end of the first year, harvest half of it, yank it out, leave the other half in the ground. Use bought seed in your second year to grow more. Because your, your, your seed from the, the, the biannualism isn't going to come until the end of the next season. So one more time, seed it with seed that you've purchased or bartered and get an understory crop growing with the overstory crop. And then at the end of the second season, harvest the seed. And from four or five plants, you'll harvest millions of parsley seed. Shake a bunch of it right back into the parsley bed and broadcast it everywhere you can all over your property and wherever it shows up, be grateful that it's there. And year after year after year, just keep getting the parsley thicker and thicker and you'll find yourself cooking with it all the time and using it for everything. And if it's ever in the way, you just chop it and put whatever you want in its place and it will never be a real problem. Uh, great idea. Need to start working on it. Haven't done it yet. But... I do always have some parsley growing somewhere on the property, and we use it all the time. Basil's an annual. We have to reseed it every year. But if you get about 10 basil plants going one year and let them go to seed and harvest all the seed, you'll have a, like a half a gallon bag of seed at least, uh, if not more, from that much basil. So that can just be broadcast wherever you want basil, and uh, you can keep it going. Oregano's a perennial. And I know people that have had perennial oregano all the way up into central Pennsylvania. A little bit of mulch, keep it going. I've got perennial uh, or oregano here. And I had a the lowest overnight low last year was 11 degrees. So if you don't typically get below 11 degrees, I guarantee you you can grow oregano. There's nothing special about the place it is. It's not like a heat trap or anything. It's actually, there's oregano on the south. Let's see, it's the, no, it's the, it would be the north east corner of one of my hugel beds that overwintered on the northeast corner it's as bad as it gets there um so oregano all of these plants again antioxidants antibacterial antimicrobial antiviral and you thought they were just ingredients next one i have for you is sorrel sorrel is one of those herbs that comes up to be used as a garden herb earlier in the year than almost anything else. It's one of the first things of green to return. It's also perennial and can be used over and over again, and it makes a good soup. There's actually quite a few different plants called sorrel. There's a common sorrel and a sheep sorrel, and the one I recommend you consider growing is a sheep sorrel because it's going to be the most, let's say, flexible. Uh, common sorrel is not as good to me anyway as like a pot herb type thing. Sheep sorrel is used in salads and soups and has like a lemon-like flavor. It's easy to grow in your backyard or on a windowsill. It's perennial. It'll come back year after year after year. And uh, it's, it's something that you don't really need space for. You can get established in your lawns, and it'll just be there. And a lot of times it'll seem to go away in the heat of summer, and it'll come back every spring. It'll regrow from its roots. There is um, a plant you can get called profusion sorrel. You can get the seeds for this. And uh, the company is in uh, Canada. And it's something you may really want to look at because it will never bolt on you. And that means that the leaves will stay tender for as long as the plant stays active. It's uh, a bread hybrid that can be reproduced from cuttings, but it doesn't produce flowers. So it doesn't flower, it doesn't go to seed. Since it doesn't go to seed, it can't bolt, so it never gets bitter. Uh, it'll, it'll make a ton, just a small p patch of it will make a ton. It'll not turn tough and bitter later in the season like most sorrels do. So if you want to extend your sorrel season, uh, you can do it with, uh, Profusion Sorrel, which is a registered trademark variety. And the company you can get it from is called Richter's, R-I-C-H-T-E-R-S, Richter's Herbs. I'll put a link to Profusion Sorrel in the uh, show notes for today's show. The next one I have for you is burdock. Um, I could I did a show on comfrey. 
I could do a show on burdock. I could do two shows on burdock. It's, it's one of the most amazing plants out there that most people don't even know about. Um, I want to read to you a little bit of an article on a website called herbcraft.org about burdock. And this is uh, written by a, an herbalist. And um, I think it'll give you a good snapshot of how awesome this plant is. One should by no means assume, however, that one's life need to be in peril to make use of burdock. Remember, burdock is a food. I'm often asked what the best way to take burdock is, as a tea, a tincture, or to eat it. My answer is to adjust it every way that you can think of. Burdock possesses so many virtues that no one way of taking it can encompass them all. Teas are not better than tinctures, and raw fresh roots are not better than fresh roots and stir-fries. They all help to offer wholesome goodness that is burdock. An awesome way to incorporate burdock in your diet is to add it when making soup stocks. It's an excellent addition to bone broth, but by no means should it be left out by vegans. The stems can be peeled of the bitter skins and eaten raw or cooked in a wild food uh, uh, prodigy. Uh, when steamed or boiled a long time, they become soft like new potatoes. They are starchy and not fibrous at all like the roots of pentoles, whatever those are. I like to serve them alone as a vegetable dish. Their mild, slightly sweet flavor can't go wrong in soup or in stir-fry. When burdock stalks are in season, late spring to early summer, when the shoots are one to three feet tall and not yet stiff, they are a truly fine vegetable. Again, think of it as a nourishing herbal food, something you work into your diet and consume regularly, prepared in as many differing manners as you can dream up. One of the constituents found in burdock's root is inulin, which is considered a prebiotic. Well, this implies that inulin is a food source for the diverse micro microbial ecology of the gut. By consuming foods rich in inulin, we feed them so their populations remain healthy and they can assist us in the breakdown of our foods to provide optimal absorption. Um, boy, you can keep reading if you want to, but do you need more? Um, this is a plant that's almost impossible to kill. It's a biannual. The roots are best harvested after the first year, so it's something you plant from seed. It grows really big leaves. It's really, really hardy. Um, you can, I think the best way to get the stems is to wait till the second year and harvest them when they first start coming up. Let that plant go to seed, harvest your seed for the next season. So you kind of run a cycle sort of like you would with, um, with parsley. Now, it does have these big, sticky seed heads on them, but they're not real thorny or anything like that. The flower looks a little thistle-like. Uh, burdock is just an amazing plant, and it's something we should all be growing. And uh, it's something I don't have on my property right now. Again, the website is herbcraft.org, and the guy that runs that is a guy named uh, Jim McDonald. And I'll put a link to the burdock page there so you can learn more about it. And at this point, we're about an hour into the show. Um, and I have six more herbs to cover. So I think I've made a decision. I'm going to change the title of this show. I've already done so online. I'll just leave it in the beginning, and you'll hear it now at the end. From 18 herbs, every modern survival should run to 12. And uh, the reality is I'll take the six that I've, I, I've uh, taken off the list right now, and I'm going to add six more, and I'll do 12 more uh, herbs as a second part of this series uh, someday next week, or maybe the week after. Uh, because if you didn't hear, like you're thinking, I can't believe he didn't say lemon balm. Well, the picture in today's show is lemon balm. It was just further down the list. Or you didn't say peppermint. It was on the list. It's one of the six that just came off. And I could do 36, 48. I don't know why I like multiples of 12 for this, but I, I could. Or multiples of six for this, but I could. I could go any... Number, I can do a couple hundred herbs, honestly, that fit this description. And I can only cover so much in one show. And about an hour on a show like this with a lot of this technical information is probably as, most, as much as most people want to listen to. I do hope it starts getting your mind flowing, though, around growing herbs. I would, if I wasn't going to have a garden, if I had, I didn't have the time and I didn't have, or, you know, I didn't really have a space to make it really, really practical and I had a suburban yard. And I said, well, what, what, what am I going to do with this? I would grow as much herbs as I could, as many different varieties and species of self-maintaining herbs as I could on my property. And I would just say, this is better than cutting grass. And even if you ate food that all came from the mass-produced food system, but just were as smart as you could be about it, and started adding fresh herbs to what you're doing, I think you're going to be a healthier, happier person. You really have to think about how much these plants do for us. And... As I finish up today, I want you to think about it this way. Like I said, 
Many of these plants have a very long history, hundreds, thousands of years with humanity. We sort of co-evolved with them. And I know some people have different opinions about the, the term evolution, but no matter how you think we got here, humans of today are different than humans of 10,000 years ago. We are physically different beings. We have been altered and changed through the reproductive cycle. And evolution is not a thing that happens and is done. Evolution is a thing that's continuous. You can see it with chickens in your backyard as you breed them. And to me, if we've, if we've grown for thousands and thousands and thousands of years with these plants at our side, It seems little coincidence to me that a rise in modern disease goes right along with the time we stopped using them. And maybe when you look back and say, well, how come our grandparents ate whatever they wanted and didn't get fat? Well, it didn't have... Let me tell you what your grandparents did and what they didn't do. They ate fresh herbs. I mean, they did. Especially if they were rural. Things like sorrel and plantain and elderberry and wild garlic and, and, and blackberries... These were free foods for people that didn't have a lot of money. So it was a natural thing to collect and use them. So they did use fresh herbs. They didn't eat high fructose corn syrup because it didn't exist. They didn't eat modern varieties of wheat sprayed with herbicides because they couldn't, because the varieties weren't made really yet. The big leaps in, in, in genetics with wheat, not GMOs, but just genetics with wheat, were in the 1970s. They didn't eat soy hardly at all. Americans ate almost no soy if you go back to the 1920s and 30s. Um, but I guarantee you they were using fresh parsley, fresh dill, fresh thyme, right? There's just, this is the way this works. When you have to work with less and you have to cook for yourself, you have to do things to make the food interesting and flavorful. And at that time, You know, and I'm not putting a judgment on this, I'm just saying this the way it was. Women mostly stayed in the home and cooked for their families. And when you do something all the time, you get good at it. And you take pride in it. And when you see it as your role, I cook for the family, you want to be the best cook you can be. And who doesn't have a grandmother that doesn't have a secret recipe? I won't tell anybody what it is. Maybe she'll tell you right before she dies. Hopefully she's written down somewhere where it doesn't go. And who, what, whose grandmother doesn't think their fill-in-the-blank is better than all the rest of the old ladies she knows. right? So you see, even today, the remnants of that mentality. Go back one more generation, you get more of it. So if the case was that these herbs were all around us, and people at the time knew what they were, we know they were cooking with them. And I think there's a lot of other things, the negative things, that contribute to modern illness. But I also think what we've stopped doing and stopped eating Because you will hear the vitamin salesman tell you this pitch. Well, you used to be able to get all your vitamins and minerals from the vegetables that you eat, but the soils are depleted now, so you can't get them in it anymore. Uh, okay. Well, maybe more it's the case that, uh, you know, head lettuce and green peppers are not that great of accumulators of nutrients in the first place. What did I start this show out with telling you about? That herbs act as accumulators of minerals and nutrients and mine them from deep in the soils. So what that means is some of these herbs, burdock for instance, is capable of accumulating iron where other plants can't. Because there is iron in all soils somewhere. Small, tiny amounts of it. Certain plants can accumulate it and bring it up to the surface and make it bioavailable to you if you eat it, or to the ground if it goes back to the ground. So a lot of the loss of mineral nutrient in our diet stems straight from not using these plants that actually accumulate it in significant quantities. So instead of like, okay, I'm going to grow this plant because it accumulates manganese, mulch this other plant with it so it can have manganese so I can get manganese, why not just eat the manganese accumulator, at least some of it? And, and that's a big part of the health gain here. It's not just fresh herbs. It's not just healthy food. It's not just that it tastes better. It's not just mentally stimulating. It's that these plants actually can take these nutrients up that, yes, the soil's deficient in, but it's not lacking completely. It's there. 
And, and the mineral nutrient acquired through things like fresh herbs and herbal teas and herbal products is significantly higher the, uh, availability to your body than most pills that you buy. In the world, words of Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory, all you're buying is expensive urine many times when you buy these bottles of pills and vitamins. So anyway, I hope you take a new look at this. I hope those of you who are not big-time gardeners or whatever at least consider, you know, plant a half a dozen different herb varieties that you'll use in your cooking in and throughout your yard. Get some plantain seed in early spring and just throw it in with your grass. Uh, maybe add some clover to that, some sorrel to that, things like that. It, you can basically build a salad bar lawn. It's a hell of a lot better than a Bermuda grass or a Raleigh St. Augustine lawn. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution